This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Yet another controversy about the nomination process for the upcoming provincial election. Uh, it's it's an interesting dynamic that's at play here, and, and this is what's going on at the, I guess it's the newly created riding of Glenbrook uh, Flamborough. Uh, this, of course, uh, is in following with the federal guidelines, and uh, remember, uh, because they've actually created an extra riding here, there's uh, going to be a bit of a nomination fight. This has happened. It happened federally as well. David Sweet had to make the decision about what to go with the old Ancaster riding of the new one. He went with the new one, was re-elected, and Philomena Tassi uh, took over the Ancaster seat. Well, the same boundaries are in play for federal and provincial ridings now, and uh, with this provincial election coming up, there have been some controversy with the progressive conservative candidates about the nomination process. And now there is speculation once again that uh, the leader of the party, Patrick Brown, may simply want to appoint a candidate, which, uh, uh, much to the chagrin, I guess, of, of the number of the people in the writing association itself. Joining us to talk about this whole process and uh, where this is going and maybe where it should be going is our good friend Peter Grave, professor of political science at McMaster University here in Hamilton. Peter, how are you doing this morning? Great, thanks. Uh, here we go again uh, with another one. I mean, this is the second Hamilton area riding. There have been some up in Ottawa, but to be fair, this is not just a PC party uh, problem. This has been going on with other party problems at all. Let's let's talk a little bit about the latest incarnation of, of what's going on here, though. Sure thing, yeah. Uh, I mean, we have a situation where uh, there's been a number of people who've been out signing up uh, members in the hope that they'd come and support them at the uh, uh, at the nomination meeting, uh, there had been a promise that there would be a nomination meeting in the fall, and now a number of those candidates have been told that uh, the leader, Patrick Brown, won't sign their nomination papers even if they win the nomination. So it's a sign that they do have an idea of who they'd like to appoint. Uh, I mean, we know uh, from when uh, Councillor Partridge came out and uh, said she was going to run for the Liberals in that riding, she told us that she had been heavily courted by the Conservatives. So presumably one of the reasons these candidates had been held off was in the hope that they would have Judy Partridge run for them. Uh, clearly they must have some other name in mind at the moment if, they, if they're if they heading in this direction. Maybe, maybe just in the way of context here, though, Peter, we should also mention for people who may not be totally aware of this, about how the nomination process is supposed to work, I guess. You, you mentioned that the people that wanted the nomination go out and sell memberships, and that's that's basically what you're told to do. If, if, if Bill Kelly or Peter Grafe wants to run for a political party in a riding, that party essentially says, Peter, go on out and sell memberships. In other words, raise money for the party and for the riding association, and and you're right, there's a nomination meeting, uh, and at that meeting, hopefully all the people that you sold memberships to are going to show up. But you're basically stacking the room with the people that support you, and that's going to get you the nomination. That's that's in, kind of in a nutshell how it's supposed to work, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, we could say stacking the room. I guess the other way of looking at it is to say that parties, uh, and sometimes have thought of themselves as democratic membership-based organizations, and so... When it comes time for the important functions in a political party, like uh, choosing local candidates or sending people to a convention to develop policy, uh, that it should be the members who decide, uh, you know, who those people will be, rather than the leadership of the party. And so, you know, there is a way in which that that's come to mean that people sign up a bunch of instant members to try and support them. But it's also a way that parties, as membership organizations, renew the renew their membership. Now, I mean, that's what parties sometimes like to tell themselves, uh, but the leadership of parties obviously wants to have some control over who the talent is going to be, uh, you know, should they manage to elect these candidates, or what sort of image they want to, to portray. And so we had, uh, I think it was uh, Jean Chrétien appointed a number of high-profile women, for instance, over the wishes of 
certain riding associations. So the leaders of these parties want to make sure that they have the right candidate, that they avoid people who might embarrass the party. But, uh, you know, more specifically, sometimes they're looking to have, you know, someone who they think is cabinet worthy, for instance, in a seat. And so we see these tensions between the sort of democratic urge of, uh, of members and the idea that these should be membership-driven organizations and leaders who want to ensure that a certain result comes out of those processes. And by the way, I, I, maybe you can correct me on this, because my understanding is that uh, those leaders, whether it's a federal or provincial leader, uh, do have the right to, to do this to appoint, but I think it's only a small number of people of appointments that they can actually make. It's not like they can go across every riding in the province and say, I'm appointing that one here, that one there, that one here. I think it's only two or three they're allowed to do, isn't it? Well, it depends on the party constitution. Oh, okay, so it's all right. Not, it's not like there's a a, a specific uh, rule, and we've seen this in the case of these contested conservative nominations, where the conservative party president Rick Dykstra has gone to court and said, "There's nothing in the conservative constitution that requires a leader to appoint the winner of uh, these local uh, nomination meetings." Uh, you know, in other words, uh, you know, despite what I talked about, this kind of democratic impulse, in fact, in its structure, is the conservative party has no aspect like that. The Liberals, I think, have a bit more of the uh, of the fact that the local ridings uh, do nominate the members, but I do think they have a number of holdbacks, like you just mentioned, where the, the leader can appoint uh, candidates. Uh, you know, in the case of the NDP, I don't think there's any such leader holdbacks, but, you know, there's other ways that leaders can make sure that they get the candidate they want, uh, you know, and sometimes it doesn't look very good in terms of trying to encourage people to step down or step aside. And, I mean, in some ways, that's part of what Kathleen Wynne's problem is at the moment in Sudbury. Yeah, is, that, that, that to, that's a, a court case that's imminent, isn't it? Yeah, where, again, she, you know, didn't want, uh, you know, the, the local boy who had done very well in the last provincial election to run because she wanted to poach uh, the NDP uh, MP in Ottawa and have him come and run. And so, you know, there, rather than, you know, just using her discretion, well, I mean, in a way, at the moment in this case, she's saying she had that discretion. She said there was, you know, no undue influence on uh, Mr. Olivier, the person who had to step aside, uh, because she had already made the decision before any kind of inducements were offered to him. Uh, You know, so those are are the sort of tensions. I mean, people have spoken of Canadian parties as franchises, where the leadership clique, uh, you know, in Queen's Park or in Ottawa federally, uh, set the brand, they set out the main policies and ideas of the party, and the local franchises are these constituency associations, and what they're able to do is choose the talent, if you like. They get to choose the candidates who are going to run and represent that party. Uh, you know, in situations like we, we've seen with, you know, the leaders in the centre appointing candidates, begins to break a bit that bargain between the idea that, you know, the local people maybe don't have a lot of decisions over what the brand is going to be in the election or what the policies are going to be, but at least they get to choose who's going to run for them and so get to shape the parties that way in terms of what sort of talent gets fed into Queen's Park or gets fed into Parliament in Ottawa. And, and that's got to be the big problem here, is, it, is to try to find that balance between uh, what the, the federal or provincial party, in other words, what the head office may want to do here and what the, the local constituents uh, may want in a situation like this. And it sounds obviously in this case in, in Flamborough Glenbrook that a few feathers have been ruffled. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I would think if you're in Patrick Brown's team, you look at that seat and you say, that's uh, if we're ever going to form uh, government, that's a seat we've got to pick up, because federally it's been, uh, you know, under uh, David Sweet for, uh, you know, a decade. You know, that was a slightly different riding because they've redistributed it, but if anything, this should be a safer conservative seat than the one that was there before. Uh, so it's one that they think they need to pick up, but then they can say, well, if I want to have the kinds of people I need around me to have an effective government... You know, these are the sorts of caliber of candidates that we want to be running in that seat. 
And so I can see the thought process there uh, on the part of the leader. But obviously the people locally say, well, wait a second. If we don't get a lot of say over the central direction of the party, at the very least we want to be able to you know, say these are who our members are. And we also want to have the incentive for our local activists to go and sign up a lot of people you know, to bring volunteers, activists, and money into the party to renew the people who are there uh, around the local party association. And and therein lies the problem. I mean, we've talked about low voter turnout in elections in the past, Peter. And how do we how do we get people involved? How do we get them energized about this? Well, that's got to start at the grassroots level. But if if you've got a, a top down kind of process here, where where a party leader is is saying, okay, that's going to be my candidate. I don't care what you guys really want to do here. That that smacks more of autocratic than democratic, and that's that's going to be a turnoff, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think in the long run, we do have a problem that our political parties, which in the 1960s in particular democratized, you know, became much more based on the decisions of members, at least formally, at the local constituency level, both in choosing candidates, but also sending people to policy conferences to set the line for the party. You know, in the past 20 years or so, with the emphasis uh, particularly on branding parties, you know, and not making mistakes in campaigns and so forth, there's been a re-centralization of power in our political parties. You know, it looks a bit different in each you know, party, but it, it takes a kind of similar direction. And it does raise a question, yeah, if, if people, I mean, obviously people go and vote, but another level of political activity is having people, you know, in communities who are plugged into political parties, who can explain what the parties are trying to do when people, you know, grumble about them. You can try and tell people about, well, here's a different way of thinking about what's going on in Ottawa or Queen's Park or what you're reading in the paper. But if you lose those party activists because they no longer see themselves as part of an organization in which they have control, you do lose that, that kind of richer aspect of political discussion, which I think also drives turnout in terms of people being engaged and linked into what's happening in politics. I, I think it's got to water down the enthusiasm as well. I mean, you know, from that grassroots level, uh, and, and let's take Flamborough Glenbrook as an example, since that's the writing where this controversy seems to be coming from right now. Uh, if, if whatever political party you're affiliated with, I mean, if you, you feel a lot more comfortable and maybe energized if you know that candidate that's going to be uh, possibly representing that riding. You may see them at the grocery store, at the soccer pitch, at the kids' soccer game and things like that, as opposed to somebody that the boss says, no, this is going to be your candidate right now. There's a disconnect there. Yeah, certainly. And we've seen, you know, as part of a number of these contested nomination processes in the Conservative Party, local riding associations resigning, and people who have been long involved in, in the party saying, wait a second, I'm going to sit this one out, or a number even saying, I'm going to experiment with some of these new tiny uh, right-wing parties that have you know, developed out of people's unhappiness, is what Patrick Brown is doing. So, I mean, uh, you know, I see that. I, I guess part of my question as a political scientist would be, how far does that go? Because on the one hand, you know, it, it does demobilize people, it does make people less willing to work, but there's also, if you like, a tribal element to politics. And, uh, you know, if these people were really engaged enough to want to go and be involved in these campaigns and, and be part of these political organizations, when the when the election comes, you know, maybe they actually go out and work anyways. <laughs> so uh, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to know where that's going to go. I mean, people talked about Donald Trump, you know, being a terrible candidate for people with Republican values traditionally, around family values or around trade and so forth in the last election. But partisan Republicans came out for him regardless. And so... Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would think there has to be some aspect of losing the motivation of volunteers, but because they're partisans, uh, sometimes that doesn't show up in the short term because they still want to see the Conservatives win. It's not like they can go and vote for another party. But there seems to be a, almost a trend that seems to have developed over the last number of years, I think, though, Peter, 
where I, I guess parties could always count on that, that, uh, you know, there's always been strong conservative support, for instance, in such and such a riding. So no matter who the candidate is, those people will come out and they'll vote conservative. I mean, what other choice are they going to have? And and I think to their surprise, what a lot of people are finding out in politics right now is a lot of those potential voters are saying, I don't like the candidate. I'm just not voting. I'm not going to go forward for another party. I'm just going to stay home that day. And that's maybe one of the contributing factors why we see low, lower voter turnout than we've seen. Yeah, that could be. Uh, I mean, I think there's a bunch of different factors driving voter turnout. I mean, maybe it's also related uh, more to that you don't have the people who are volunteering to go out and knock on doors uh, and get people to vote, which is really, you know, people, one of the kind of key predictors of vote is, like, were you contacted by a party? Mm -hmm. Did you have a face that, you know, did someone knock at your door? Um, don't don't you hear that a lot from people that that, that are, are disenfranchised or dis you know and, and ticked off? They simply say, "Well, nobody knocked on my door this election." That's right, and I mean, part of what's driving that, of course, is people are busy, so they aren't able to go and volunteer in the way they used to knock on doors. But you know, the other part is, I think, what you point to is that if these party organizations are no longer seen as really membership driven, the members begin to kind of dry up, and so rather than getting someone knocking on your door who you know lives down the block and is a partisan for whatever party. You get a phone call from a phone bank, you know, which where the you know, it's not volunteers, it's people who are paid to go and call you and tell you about the local candidate and why they're great, you know, and then they'll call in someone else in Halifax and tell them about the <laughs> local candidate there. So, I mean, there's you know, there's a lot of different factors pushing over to turnout, but I mean, certainly the fact that our parties aren't seen as member-driven does have a number of knock-on effects in terms of whether you get the the volunteers out. Uh, to do that sort of really close uh, engagement with their neighbors. Well, one of the uh, classic lines of politics was uh, former uh, House of Representatives Speaker Tip O'Neill, and I know you know it, Peter, where he opined at one time that all politics is local. That seems to be a message that gets lost on political parties these days sometimes. Yeah, although, I mean, it's uh, the extent they can get away with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if I guess. If losing, you know, I suspect the Conservatives have a really good chance in Glanborough, Flambrook, regardless of who the candidate is, because of you know, where the votes are provincially and where, you know, Kathleen Wynne is and the sort of dynamics of that riding and the base of voters. And so, you know, unless parties get punished for this kind of behavior, they really don't see much cause to change. Peter Grafe, always a pleasure having you on the program, Peter. We'll see how this turns out in the uh, fullness of time uh, over the next little while. We know when the election is, and uh, there's uh, certainly an awful lot of play going on in the meantime. Appreciate the time today. You're welcome. Take care. Peter Grafe, of course, political science professor at McMaster University. Uh, by the way, the rumors, obviously, about uh, Donna Skelly being involved in this, too, that uh, we talked about earlier. Uh, neither uh, Donna nor uh, Peter or, or Patrick Brown have commented on that uh, publicly. Uh, the speculation by some people is that the reason why they haven't had a nomination meeting out there yet is that uh, the party hierarchy is trying to convince Donna to run in that riding. And again, nobody's confirming that, nor denying it either. But uh, where there's smoke, there's fire, I suppose. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Great piece in the Toronto Star today. Uh, N.D. Pierce, who questioned Jagmeet Singh's abilities, sound like Trudeau's critics four years ago. Tim Harper writes about this. Tim, of course, is a freelance writer and editor, and he joins us on The Bill Kelly Show to talk about what's happening with the NDP leadership race. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm very good, Bill. How are you? Good. This is a, a, a race that's really not on a whole lot of people's radar these days, is it? No, I don't think it's setting the country on fire. Um, it's, not only is it the NDP, uh, but they're uh, they're doing this during the uh, the dog days of summer. So I they knew this was coming. Um, the timing was a problem. They wanted to time this leadership race after the British Columbia election, which meant it was going to be pushed into the summer, and uh, voting doesn't start until uh, middle of September. So I suspect it'll get uh, a fair bit 
more attention, at least by NDP standards, uh, after Labor Day. Well, I mean, this is the third party on the federal scene. We get that, but uh, it was a party that uh, that you know did spike, obviously, with Jack Layton, uh, and of course his his uh, untimely death, and then of course Tom Mulcair took over like this. Uh, and and well, we all know about the Tom Mulcair story, and that's uh, I guess uh, still being written right now. The final couple of chapters. And, uh, and uh, you know, they're going to decide exactly what did happen with Mulcair and, and, and that leadership. But this is, I, I think, from a political standpoint, and with a federal election not too far into the future right now, Tim, uh, this matters. And, and who's going to lead the federal party, I think, is pretty important as, as far as, as you and I have talked about in, in the past, about the direction this party is going to take. And that seems to me to be still very much up in the air. Yeah, I agree with you, Bill. It does matter. I think it matters on a, a number of levels. One is, uh, they are the third party now. They uh, had a, obviously a, an incredibly disappointing um, result in 2015. Uh, I, the party, I believe, has learned from that. Uh, when you talk to them, and um, I do talk to New Democrats fairly regularly, there will be a common theme that they're not they're not going to get outlefted by the by the Liberals again, who uh, under Trudeau in 2015 did beat them on the left flank and and, and are not certainly governing that way. I'd be surprised. <laughs> but uh, there's also this forever ongoing battle within the NDP. And I, just uh, as way of background, I've been covering the federal NDP uh, off and on since the late 80s, which I know dates me, but there's always this debate about what the party wants to be. There's always a, a struggle between the so-called establishment uh, and the grassroots. Do you want to become the conscience uh, a, a social movement? You need to move to the center in order to um, uh, try to win, um, and it's it's underway again as we speak, as it always is with this party. Well, uh, because again, that seems to be part of the discussion, isn't it? When it goes to philosophy versus pragmatism, do you simply yeah. want to be a social conscience, or do you want to get elected? And remember, and, remember, and that seems to be a decision they have to make. Well, I remember talking to Mulcair when he was running for the leadership, and. Um, he he told me over lunch one day that he was stunned that he would go out in the prairies and and um, you know not just the prairies but it was prevalent out there where, where people would suggest he was tossing away principles because he was actually trying to win power and that's not what the NDP does and it it took a a, a complete sea change in attitude for them to to decide under Tom Mulcair that they actually could form a government um, Leighton had taken them. Uh, you know, w- one step away, uh, they were in Stornoway. Uh, it obviously didn't turn out that way, but I think the, I, I don't think there's any going back for this party federally right now, other than they, they feel they, they must compete for power. Um, that's why um, I, I think you see what we loosely call the elite or the establishment of this party uh, kind of rallying around Jagmeet Singh, the uh, former Ontario deputy leader, the Brampton MPP still, uh, who they believe can bring in enough um, uh, new blood, new members, um, and 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 take on Justin Trudeau in 2019. So, um, you know, but the, as I say, the battle's still going on. There are grassroots who have not become enamored of this guy, but I think by and large he does have the establishment backing. But you do mention in the piece today, Tim, uh, and, and let's use the C word here, okay, uh, charisma, uh, and and I'm not suggesting that people should just get elected on charisma. There there has to be some meat on the bones too. We get that, but charisma does play into modern day politics. Jack Layton had it. Whether you, you agreed or disagreed with with Jack Layton's policies and his philosophy, 
Uh, Jack was a great interview. I loved having Jack on the show because he was always a great guy to talk with. And, and, you know, my buddy Charles Adler would say the same thing. He and Jack were pretty good friends, although they are diametrically opposed on so many different issues. But there was an attraction to Jack Layton because of that, and it, 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 it did well for him politically. And, and so when Canadians got disenfranchised and disenchanted with the Liberals, and especially with Michael Ignatieff, Jack Layton was a, a very viable alternative to them, so they turned to that. Mulcair never really seemed to have that spark. I, I, again, a nice, gregarious Irish guy, but uh, just didn't seem to, to, to do that sort of thing. Do they think they've got that again with Jagmeet Singh? Well, it's interesting that a lot of um, uh, senior people who worked with Jack Layton are working with Jagmeet Singh, so uh, I think that will tell you something. The people who know Jagmeet, I mean, I've, I've obviously seen him in action and talked to him and met him uh, a number of times. But when you see him in action, uh, as one senior new Democrat told me last week, he's got this um, this innate people skill that you can't teach to a politician. You either got it or you don't. Justin Trudeau has it. They think Jagmeet Singh has it in the NDP, where people will follow him where he is, he's a people magnet. And I, I've seen him at events where he's, a, uh, in my view, a lot more comfortable and a lot more powerful, meeting with supporters before the debate, meeting with the supporters after the debate, but not uh, bringing what I believe right now would be an A-game to the debate. Uh, I saw Justin Trudeau go through the same thing uh, four, four and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. And you heard the same... Um, you heard the same complaints and the grumbling within the party and without outside the party. You know, look, he's, he's got great hair. People like him, but he's not a good debater. There's no depth there. Um, you know, Harper will eat him alive. Mulcair will eat him alive. Um, and lo and behold, we, we see what's happened. So I, I, I find it an intriguing question. I mean, there are people in the, in the NDP who are questioning whether really in 2019 you should try to out Trudeau Trudeau. But there's no mistaking that, that you know. Use the word charisma. This guy is he's a he's a he's a magnet, uh, and people want to meet him. And I saw the same dynamic going in with Trudeau. And I'm not I'm not sitting here telling your listeners I'm not predicting that he's going to take on Justin Trudeau and beat him in 2019. I'm just saying you see the similarities in the room. People want selfies with him. They want to shake his hand. Um, if you go down the street with him, people know who he is. Uh, with all due respect to Guy Caron, uh, Nikki Ashton, and Charlie Angus, the other three candidates who all bring uh, particular strengths to this race, um, they don't get stopped on the street in Toronto, um, at least. Um, but Jagmeet Singh does. And, and always has. I mean, I've not met the yeah. man personally, but I've, 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 again, watched him as you have. And he's a very personable guy. He he comes across well on television. He's he's very articulate. Uh, and he, he does have that, that charisma. Uh, which I think is is uh, not necessarily the most important, but does have to be a factor in this, and and especially given the dynamic of of you know Justin Trudeau right now, uh, you I think I, I think you've got to pay attention to that. But I guess the greater problem right now is you mentioned that a lot of the Jack Layton people are, are supporting him, and you talk about some of the other folks in your piece today, Tim that are, are getting onto the, the, the Jagmeet Singh bandwagon right now, but they're doing it uh, with a codicil, and, and th- that codicil ch- seems to change depending on which person you're talking to. Well, there's a, a Jagmeet Singh um, federal leadership for the NDP, there's a risk-reward. People, I think, realize there's a risk here, and, and when you talk to them privately, here are some of the risks. It is, as you know well, uh, 
a large step up from playing on the provincial level, even if it's Ontario, to the federal level. Uh, and he, there are supporters of uh, Jagmeet Singh's who are backing him and who are going to vote for him, but would like to see him up his game a little bit when it comes to federal policy because it becomes apparent when you see him on the stage with, uh, well, the last time I saw them live, there was a, a, another candidate, Peter Julian, who's since uh, dropped out. But he was debating against four seasoned um, federal MPs who knew policy and had um, you know, a, a greater context and, and, and more experience. Mm-hmm. That's one problem. There, is, um, there are questions about all these uh, new members he's expected to bring in to the party. Just to back up for your listeners, the next, uh, there, were the, there were the financial disclosures this week, and Singh has lapped the field. The next big um, marker to see how people are doing in this race will be the membership that have been sold. That is on August 17th, and uh, there's every expectation he's going to lap the field on that, too. But who is he bringing into the party? Are they, are they people who are going to stay in the party, or are these people that he has brought in who are going to vote for him uh, as federal leader and then not necessarily stay, um, you know, do the work in the trenches and so on that this party needs. So, you know, there's a concern with that. There's, uh, and I think we've spoken about this, there's another concern that people gingerly will raise, but um, they need to rebuild in Quebec. And, uh, you know, we've, we've talked about polling data that shows uh, voters in Quebec uh, would be uncomfortable supporting a, um, a leader with a head covering and, uh, Jagmeet is a Sikh. Uh, they were polled on that in the Angus Reid poll. Um, there, there is a sense that there would be some difficulty for him in Quebec. You don't need Quebec to win the NDP leadership because the membership there is quite sparse. Uh, you need Ontario and B.C., and that's where he is strong. But if he wins, uh, he's going to have to do a lot of building in Quebec. And this is where a, a very little-known fourth candidate by the name of Guy Caron, who is from Quebec, who is running for the leadership, a number of people have suggested that the ideal setup for the NDP uh, would be to have Singh at the helm with uh, Caron as his uh, Quebec lieutenant working uh, assiduously in Quebec, where he's better known. Well, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves now, but people have suggested to me that that would work for the party. Let me ask you something. I, I'm trying to read between the lines here, and I, I know you touched on this a couple of times yeah. in the piece. Uh, is is the ethnic issue bigger than just in Quebec? I mean, you know, for years, Tim, they used to pull right across the Canada. You know, would you elect a woman as prime minister? Oh yeah, that, I'll see. But they don't. You know, when push comes to shove, and they have to mark the X on the ballot, uh, a lot of the time it didn't happen. And I know that if you were to pull right across the country, everybody would say, "Oh no, ethnicity's not a problem anymore." Uh, I know that just like they said that you know women, you know, Hillary Clinton ran into misogynist attitudes in the last presidential election down there. Is it an issue that no one wants to talk about that's still there? Um, are you talking about within the party, or are you talking federally? Well, both. Uh, let's talk about within the party first of all. Well, within the party, um, there, there, it's not a concern over ethnicity, so I don't, I don't want to give it that label. There is a concern. Uh, People backing other candidates and those who are not sold on single will tell you that there's nothing wrong with this, and there isn't. But he's obviously mobilizing Sikhs in the lower man, mainland of B.C., and particularly in the 905 here. Uh, there might be some, un, yeah, some discomfort, perhaps, about um, mobilizing people from one ethnic category to win a party leadership. 
clearly it's been done at the riding level. Liberals for years. Oh, sure. Uh, Italian Canadians have rallied around candidates. Portuguese Canadians have rallied around candidates. And Sikhs have done it um, in the 905 for other parties. Um, but people are, are hard-pressed to, to come up with an example where um, uh, one voting block mobilized to win a, a leadership. But um, I mean, these are, they may be Sikh Canadians, but they're hardly new Canadians. The, the history of Sikhs in this country go back uh, decades and decades. Oh, sure, so, yeah. You know, um, so, you know, it's been flagged, and I want to be careful what I'm saying. Nobody is suggesting that there's an ethnic tinge to this. Federally, I don't know. We're going to have to test this. Um, I would like to think not, but uh, that's a good question, and I, I guess we won't. Uh, I, I really wouldn't be able to speculate uh, until we actually have um, a Sikh uh, leader federally. But you know, there there are four Sikhs in uh, Justin Trudeau's uh, federal cabinet, and I'm not aware of any of them running into any problems. So I, I would like to, my my softer. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I love Canada. Canada side would like to say, no, I don't think it's going to be a problem. But you're right to raise it. It's going to have to be tested if he wins. Well, I mean, I just, just you're, and you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. I mean, you look at what happened in in the 2015 election, and and subsequently the the Sikhs that uh, the uh, the prime minister has put into his cabinet. Uh, and and I agree with you. I I want the answer to be no. It's not a factor. But you know, in, and juxtapose that with the the Burka issue and the uh, you know the other stuff that's gone on with, uh, especially with some of the stuff the Conservative Party talked about, even during their leadership uh, race just a couple of months ago. And you have to wonder if there's uh, there's a, a problem there. I hope there isn't. I really do. But this this may just bring it to the fore one way or another. I, I like this guy. I, I am, a, and it's going to be an interesting race when push comes to shove here because you've got. Uh, all the, the the stereotypes here. You got the the hardened veteran like Charlie Angus, who's been around forever and has debated just about every issue you could think of in the House. Uh, you've got Nikki Ashton, who's who's a, a bright light and and somebody who's offering a different perspective on this. Uh, and you've got Singh, and then you've got Caron. Uh, the the players here are, are intriguing, each and every one of them. They are, and just a word about Ashton. Uh, she seems to be surging when it comes to fundraising too, and. You know, the reason we're talking about following the money, it's really the only uh, yardstick that we have to know what's going on in this uh, this race. Um, Nikki Ashton is doing a good job of, uh, of mobilizing um, new Democrats who feel excluded from the party establishment, and there are a lot of them. And she's working hard to create a socialist movement. Um, the establishment worries that she's, she's kicking down some... Um, sacred um, uh, holdings of the NDP that have been forged on consensus. She's kicking them down for her own political gain. And i, I got to be honest with you, the, when you talk to the so-called establishment, which I keep referring to, but those are the new Democrats I tend to hang out with, some of them are a little um, uh, uh, a little spooked at, at the kind of support she's getting because, you know, the, you're going to you're gonna risk that kind of establishment grassroots split again that this party's had to deal with in the past. But she's... Um, she, she raised a hundred thousand dollars in July, which is um, for her candidacy. Uh, it surprised me. So she can't be ignored. You're right about Angus. Uh, Angus has a lot of deep support in the party base. He is uh, renowned for his work on indigenous uh, uh, and environmental issues in the north. Um, the knock you sometimes hear about Charlie is that he he will appear too much like Mulcair in terms of age and demeanor in the 2019 election. And that, that's not fair. I know it's not fair. 
But, you know, there's style. We talked about how much style counts in um, in politics, and, and a guy like Singh will get, at least the party will get noticed. Exactly. It's a great uh, read today. Check it out on the Toronto Star. You can go on their website and check it out, too. Tim, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. You too, Bill. Have a good day. You too. Uh, Tim Harper, of course, uh, freelance writer and editor, and you can check his stuff out on the Star on the website. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Saga of the Hamilton Tiger Cats continues. We all know what happened on Saturday night, of course, at McGrand Stadium in Calgary. They lost 60-1. to If you're just waking up or just coming back from holidays, yeah, 60-1. to Yeah, 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 it was one of the worst uh, defeats in, in the history of the CFL. We get that, okay? But we're moving on. I, at least I think we are anyway. Uh, except that uh, Drew Edwards from the Hamilton Spectator uh, reports that uh, there was a big brawl yesterday at practice uh, involving a number of players on the, the field, including Zach Caleros and others. That's not real smart. That's a good way to get injured. But uh, it does talk about some of the issues and I guess some of the temperament of some of the players that are going on. Kent Austin, the head coach, says, uh, not nah, much to do about nothing. Don't worry about that. These things happen. Well, they don't when teams are winning. But the Cats have not won. Uh, as a matter of fact, they've only won one of their last, I think it's 14 league games. Uh, that's not really impressive. And, of course, they're moving into Edmonton on Friday night to take on the undefeated Eskimos. You remember the Edmonton Eskimos? Remember a couple of weeks ago? Cats were leading with about a minute and a half left in the game. Edmonton got the ball, drove right down the field, scored the winning touchdown, which is one of the reasons why they're undefeated and the Cats are winless. So are the Eskimos taking this game for granted? Is this just an automatic two points? Are they even going to wear shoulder pads for this one? David Campbell is the uh, play by, uh, the color analyst, of course, for the uh, broadcast for the Edmonton Eskimo games on our sister stations, uh, 630 Ched in Edmonton. He blogged about this on his on his uh, webpage the other day, and he joins us to talk about this. David, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Hi, Bill. Nice to be on your show. Uh, I wish we could talk about it under easier circumstances and better circumstances. I mean, there were some classic uh, Hamilton-Edmonton games over the uh, last couple of years. And and to be fair about it, I guess the game a couple of weeks ago here at Tim Horton Field was, was a pretty competitive football game. There there were a lot of mistakes, but uh, almost a victory for the Tiger Cats, almost the first loss for the Eskimos. Uh, is that still front of, of mind for the Eskimos as they go into this game on Friday night, Dave? Absolutely, because I, you know, I asked Jason Moss, the head coach of the Eskimos, about this game being a trap game, right? And because it, it's going to come out, you got five and zero Edmonton Eskimos, who are by record are the best team in the league, taking on by record the worst team in the league in the Hamilton Tiger Cats at zero and five and losing sixty to one, as you mentioned. And I asked him right away in his media scrum on Monday. I said, Coach, this is uh, this is going to be you know labeled as a trap game for your team, so. How do you approach it? How do you handle it for your team? And he said, you know what? We were in Hamilton two weeks ago. We were 3-0. and They were they were 0-3, and we won the ball game by three points, and we didn't get our first lead until 23 seconds left in the fourth quarter. So he says, if you think this is a trap game and our, and our, and our focus is you know, on, well, we're just facing a, an easy team and we're the juggernauts and that sort of thing, uh, he said, forget it. We're not thinking that way. We have to respect the opponent. Uh, they're also playing a team that has won in Edmonton three of the last four years and that won uh, last year in Edmonton after erasing a 25-point deficit in the second half. Now, I would I would probably say that was a much different team than the team we're seeing now, but, uh, they're, you know, Jason Moss is, you know, he's put it out there. He said, this is not a trap game for us. We're focused. We have other goals that we have to achieve here. We have a lot of things to clean up on, on our on our football team. But yeah, I mean, you look at it on paper. This looks like the mismatch of the century. So 
but I think it is a bit of a challenge for the for the Eskimos because they're coming off an emotional win over a divisional opponent in the BC Lions in a game that was billed as a first place battle. So this one I think is going to be a challenge for this football team, and uh, you know we'll see how they handle it. Uh, now they're going to face a team that you know might be rip snorting mad because they lost by 59 points and they're being questioned over and over again. You got to think the Tiger Cats played better. But uh, you know what? <laughs> uh, this is going to be a real test of the Ticats' character and, the, and their metal right now because when you lose by 59 points, you know, you can do it. You, you can take it one of two ways. You go, well, a loss is a loss. If you lose by one or 59, it's still a loss. Or it could be a reflection of just how bad things are going on in Hamilton tonight you know, with the Tiger Cats. And I believe there are some stuff going on within that organization that's not good right now as far as, you know, the, the, the psyche of a the psyche of a, of a team and, you know, a coach in Ken Austin that's trying to manage all the, the negativity around the team. And there's been a ton of it. I mean, getting questions about it every day. And uh, we know Ken Austin, you know, <laughs> how he's like uh, in, in the media. And it's he's very prickly at times. So I'm really curious to see what's going to happen on Friday. Well, this is the thing, though. They, I mean, you know, you and Morley, Morley Scott, of course, the play-by-play guy, your, your broadcast partner in the game so for the Eskimos, you guys have spoiled. I mean, you know, what's the the adversity for the Eskimos was a couple of years ago where they had to do the wild card game. I mean, boo-hoo. You know, we're, we're trying to make the playoffs, for God's sakes. Uh, so, I mean, you know, this is one of the most storied and one of the most successful franchises in the history of the CFL. Uh, and and they don't do a whole lot of controversy there. I mean, things have gone pretty well. The coaching decisions, you bring in some of the best players that we've ever seen in the CFL have worn Eskimo colors. And and this is a pretty damn good football team, too. I mean, you know, sometimes you look at a team that's undefeated and say, yeah, well, look at who they played. Uh, these guys play pretty good football. I know it was nip and tuck for a little while at Tim Horton Field a couple of weeks ago. But, uh, you know, the cream rose to the top. That's On both sides of the football, this is an awfully good team. Yeah, I would think so. And, you know, they haven't been winning games by, you know, a, a, a huge margin, right? And, but before the game against the BC Lions, they, they won their four games by, um, by a combined total of 12 points. They won all four of their games by four points or less. So it's not like they were blowing teams out of the water. Um, then they come out last week and they beat the Lions by 11 points. So, you know, that was a much more, uh, you know, more comfortable game for the Eskimos when it comes to, you know, the score. But I think the difference, and I go back to the game against the Tiger Cats two weeks ago at Tim Hortons Field, and the Tiger Cats, I thought, played really well. I mean, they put a lot of pressure on Mike Riley. They hit Mike Riley a lot. And they, you know, obviously, you know, they didn't give up a lead until 23 seconds left in the fourth quarter. And unfortunately for them, it lost them the football game. But what the Eskimos are able to do right now is make the plays when they need to make the plays in critical moments of the game. And the Tiger Cats, you know, simply cannot do that right now. But the now, Eskimos right? have always done that, haven't they, Dave? I mean, I was I was well, at the Grey Cup a couple of years ago in, in Winnipeg, and and you remember that game. I mean, Ottawa came out there with all guns firing, took an early lead, and everybody thought, well, Eskimos, thanks for showing up. Uh, and they just didn't give up. I mean, and they made big plays when they had to make big plays. That's, that's a, an Eskimo tradition. But I'll tell you what, the Eskimos from the period of 2006 to 2013 were, for the most part, dreadful. Now, were they as you know, as bad as an 0-5 Hamilton Tiger Cats team, close. I don't think they were that bad, but you know, they were uh, they were seven they were seven and eleven in in 2006, and they had their 34 year playoff streak end. Mm-hmm. They were five twelve and one in 2007. They were uh, they were uh, I believe they got off to something like a two and eight or two and nine start 
in 2010 and then kind of made a made a run and then in 2013 which was uh, Mike Riley's rookie season as a as a starter in Edmonton um, you know they 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 finished 4 and 14 I mean they were dreadful and there was drama all sorts of you know all so many of those years and they they went through coaching changes they went through management changes and now things have settled down with the Eskimos and you know the only thing that you know has happened here that has been kind of you know, like shocking is that Ed Hervey was let go, their general manager, yeah. about, you know, two weeks or two months before the season was scheduled to start. And they brought in a new general manager in Brock Sunderland. But, you know, Jason Moss is under his second year as head coach, and he has definitely brought a different culture to this football team. And he's someone that has played in Edmonton and won great cups in Edmonton. So, you know, I think it's, 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 it's tough when you see an organization go through the tough times, but it's what that organization does during those tough times to correct themselves. And that's what we're going to see with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. Okay. But, you know, it's funny. They're, they've been through this before, and they, they just don't start well for whatever reason. And I know you can't keep going to that well, and I do think this year is a lot different than, you know, 2013 and 14 when they got off the terrible start to went to the Grey Cup game in, in those years. But what does Bob Young, the owner, do in this situation? What does the president, Scott Mitchell, do in this situation? Who have a lot of loyalty to Ken Austin. Um, and I don't think we're going to see Ken Austin lose his job anytime soon. I, I, I think loyalty. that would be the worst thing they can do. And, and whether you're a huge Ken Austin fan or not, uh, just on principle, you've, Dave, you've been around the game long enough. You don't blow up an organization like that. No. Kent is not, not only the head coach, he's the, 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 the vice president of football operations. He's got his hand on so many different aspects of this operation right now. Uh, this is Kent Austin's team, and he's going to be with it for the rest of the year. Uh, and, and we have to come to grips with that. And I'm not so sure that he's the problem anyway. I, I mean, when teams are losing like this, uh, a lot of what's going on uh, over the years, and you've talked about some of the the Edmonton history, it's between the ears of the football players. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the attitude they take, and when things happen on a football field, which inevitably is going to ebb and flow, how they respond to that. And boy, I tell you, when you're when you're owing whatever it is, and owing five for the Cats right now, it's awfully hard to to get that mindset out that well, what's going to go wrong next? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And that's the problem with the Tiger Cats right now or any team that is going through what they're going through is, you know, and I remember the 2013 year when I referenced they were 4-14, four you know, they lost several football games within a, you know, within a, a, a converted touchdown or, you know, five points or something like that, you know, and, and they just could not take over football games. And every time they got close, it was like that mental block and that mindset of, well, what's going to happen next that we're going to, you know, fritter this lead away and that's what i see the tie cats doing and you know in their first couple of games they were kind of close uh but you know not that close and then they play edmonton and they were in a position to win that football game and they lose that football game and then they go to calgary and that was just a debacle and the funny thing about the calgary game is is they were close for a while and then all of a sudden these big plays just happen like there's about five six plays in a row yeah the first half of the first quarter they, they look pretty good yeah, exactly. But it, it was, you know, it, it, and for a team that is, you know, struggling like the Tiger Cats, you know, it can snowball that quickly. I remember 2010 going to Calgary and seeing two close to 50-point blowouts to the Calgary Stampeders in a matter of three weeks, you know. So it can happen. There's no question about it. So, uh, But the mindset of the team is, is very, very interesting to watch. And for Ken Austin, it's hard to manage that because he can't get inside the players' heads. He just has to – a job of a coach is to come up with a game plan, of course, 
but it's also to create the the environment that the players are comfortable in. And it's tough to do when you're losing. And Ken Austin, I think, gets you know gets a lot of heat for being a very prickly guy in the public eye. But I think behind closed doors, it's a very different story. Ken Austin seems to be a guy that a lot of people do like. Um, you know, and there's an intensity when you see him on the field because he's in his element. And when it's, you know, behind closed doors, there seems to be a, you know, a guy that's very caring, very genuine, very demanding, yes. But a coaching change does nothing right now. Who's going to take over the, the Ticats as the head coach, as the vice president of football operations and, you know, and the offensive coordinator. Who's going to do it right now? Uh, Bill Belichick. Bill, no, no, he's busy. No, he's, he's got a job. I'm sorry. We had this on, on our fifth quarter on the postgame show after the game on Saturday. Rick Zamperin, uh, our sports director who hosts that. And i got to tell you, uh, Dave, we heard like, oh, bring back Danny McManus. Bring back this guy. They're busy. They're all employed. They're doing well. Thank you very much. They're not coming back here. This is the organization we've got. This is what you have to work with. Uh, and 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 that's the challenge, I guess, to say, okay, how do you make this this better now, and how do you yeah. get this going? But it takes on a life of itself. I mean, you talked about some of the the not so successful times with the Eskimos, and you saw it out there, Dave. I mean, the finger pointing. Well, it's Ed Hervey's fault. It's the coach's fault. It's get rid of the quarterback, and on and on it goes like this. And and, and at one point, you have to ask yourself. When does that start affecting the players? And we saw this brouhaha that broke out of practice yesterday yeah. uh, where the Tiger Cats are working out, and you figure that's starting to spill over, and you don't know which way it's going to go. I mean, are they, uh, are they going to say, okay, we got that out of our system, now let's focus, or is that just going to fester with them? Yeah, it, it's true. And, you know, that, that, that type of happening could, could take place with the winning football team too, but the way it sounded... Not so much, though, right? No, it was like that was like a tier six brawl out in the field, and that that tells you that the the players are darn frustrated with each other. Absolutely. So uh, I would say at the end of the day that th- this is a football team that is definitely trying to find their way. They're, and they got to do it in, in a short amount of time. They're playing on a short week. They're playing against a, a good football team. But what should give them confidence is don't look at you know you got to look at the game in Calgary, of course, because you have to do that. But I think the focus has to be on what happened two weeks ago in Hamilton. We were close to beating these guys. You know, we did a lot of good things in that game. We just have to understand when it comes to key moments, we have to make the plays necessary to win the football game. But it's tough, and that's why their 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 psyche, their their metal, their character will be tested on Friday. And when they find those key moments where you know adversity hits them, how do they respond? You either respond by pushing back or you respond by just shriveling away. And that was most disturbing in Calgary is when, yes, give Calgary credit for making big plays, but they did not, the Ticats did not have one ounce of pushback at all. And I think that's what's concerning. And that's what you need to see from, from the football team. Because I'll tell you what, the 2013 team from the Edmonton Eskimos that I watched, they were not, they were not a good football team. But I'll tell you what, they fought the opponent till the very end. And yes, did they get blown out a couple times? They did. So the Ticats could be that team as well. I, and another thing is this. You know, they're playing in the East Division. And the East Division compared to the West Division is much different. The parity is, you know, it's different sort of parity. The Ticats are not out of this. All it takes is one win. And to, to really get themselves, you know, maybe riding and going in the other direction. Because they're never out of it when it comes to the East Division. 
But when you keep saying that, <laughs> that's also kind of a consolation prize, too. You go, well, they're on five and they're not out of it. They could be on six, but they're not out of it. You got to start winning football games. You can't be hanging on the standings like that. So this team badly needs some good things to happen for them. But for it to happen in a short amount of time, uh, you know, after a 60 to one drubbing and more questions and more talk and, you know, Ken Austin's job is to, is to manage the negativity and, and to keep the noise level down as far as the, you know, is the, uh, the, the criticism that's being leveled towards his team and especially him. And that's a difficult thing when you're losing. Let me, yeah, I, I got about a minute left here. Uh, you mentioned that, uh, that Edmund coach uh, Jason Moss has said all the right things, you know, we're not taking these guys lightly, et cetera. And you, you watch your coach to say that, and, and he's, he's doing that. But what's going on inside the players' heads? I mean, uh, you know, they've seen this happen. They've seen what's going on. Some people suggesting that this team is imploding right now. Uh, do they go in there and play to the level of, of, of the opposition, or do they just go out there and do, well, what Calgary did and just, just you know what, it, we're going to fire with all guns here and whatever happens, happens. Is, is it hard for the Eskimos to get psyched up I, and the players themselves? I think that the test for the Eskimos is after an emotional win over a divisional opponent in a game that was for first place in the Western Division is to bring up your emotional level and find a way to uh, see this game as important. And when you're professionals, you have to find a way to do it. And Jason Moss had a great line last week. And, you know, he was, he was epic at, at talking up the matchup with the Lions. And he said, it is not just another game. It is a battle for first place. It is the biggest game on our schedule right now. I want to see how our players respond to it. Because, you know, the pat line from a coach, well, it's week six and it's the next game, so it's important. Jason Moss didn't play it up that way. But he also said something within those comments that I found very interesting. As a professional athlete, there are games you have to find motivation to get up for. This is the test for the Eskimos. What motivates you to get up for this game? And I'll tell you what, I think it's a couple of things. It's, it's, it's the fact that this team, that the Ticats almost beat you two weeks ago in Hamilton. And secondly, this is a team that has played traditionally very comfortable in Edmonton and has three wins out of their last four years. So those are some points that I think the Eskimos maybe can, can, can talk about. But at the same time, you know, you're on a roll. You're, at, you're 5-0. and This team hasn't been 6-0 and in a long, long time. And, you know, that's motivation enough. And they have a great opportunity to do it against, a, you know, a, a, a really a weaker opponent. And it, it should happen. The Eskimos should be walking out uh, of Commonwealth Stadium with a win at 6-0. and But... Like they say in football, any given Sunday or any given Friday night football, anything can happen. Friday night in this case. Dave, <laughs> thanks as always for the time. Great uh, talking with you, and uh, best to you and Morley, of course, for the broadcast on Friday night. Thanks, Bill. Appreciate it very much. Take care. Dave Campbell, of course, color analyst at uh, the Eskimos games. And, of course, right after the game, uh, win or lose, uh, you can talk to Rick Zamperlin in the fifth quarter right here on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.